Hey, how are you? What's up, everyone? It is uh, the 18th of May, 2023. It is episode 158 of my live chat. Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. Welcome to the live podcast that we do here. Glad you could join me. I greatly appreciate it. You might know me from Showtime or CBS Sports, but this is my personal YouTube channel. Thank you so much for making some time. I greatly appreciate it. On the docket, I believe there's a gazillion Francis and Ganu questions. Hopefully, we can get to it from a relatively new angle or we can answer questions that you've had that maybe have gone unanswered. I don't know. I will do my best or whatever else you have for me here today. So you guys know the drill. Thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe if you haven't. If you want to contribute in the super chat, you certainly may. Um, you are under no obligation to do that. And if you don't, um, that's okay. You can enjoy the free content. I really appreciate it. Just the same, no matter what. All right. So with that in mind, let's get going. We'll go for about an hour on these questions and then we'll jump over to the paid side, but uh, you get the drill. All right. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate it. Let's go. And we're back. All right. Um, hope you're having a great Thursday. I am as well. I got a little bit of hair on me. I got a haircut. It's okay, I guess. Not as good as you're going to make me look. Um, not that great. So, um, yeah, let's get this going. I'm going to put these on the screen. I've got dark mode on because I know you guys have been asking for that. And uh, I did, I think, the last couple of weeks. But I, I should have it more frequently now, no matter what. Actually, we put this one on. There we go. How about that? All right, let's refresh this bad boy and then get going here at the top. Okay. Great question. Uh, Luke, how likely do you think it is that the weighty $2 million guarantee for Francis's future opponent draws one of the UFC heavyweights over to the proverbial dark side of the PFL? Who do you think could be tempted? Boy, that's a great question. It's really the million dollar question because getting Francis is enormous. They're calling it when I say they, PFL is calling it the biggest, um, I think, signing in MMA history. Somewhat debatable, but certainly one of the bigger ones, that's for sure. Uh, but it doesn't really work if Francis is fighting whoever the hell is over there without any real grand name. In fact, um, it wouldn't work at all. So the question is, how much can the $2 million entice someone to go fight him? Well, the truth is, I would imagine that the $2 million figure is very significant enough to entice all of those guys to want to go over. The challenge that they're up against, and the reason why this gamble by PFL is really quite um, almost extreme, frankly, is that it? I don't know how likely it is to work, candidly. I mean, I get what they're going for. Um, what they're up against are fighters who have contracts. Now, we don't know the state of Pavlovich's contract or Aspinall or Almeida or some of these other guys. We don't really know the full state of them. Um, but what we do know is guys who have signed contracts post-2017, the newer, or no, excuse me, the ones that, uh, 2022, I should say. So post that, the new five-year gap after 2017, the ones on this other end of it, they have to sign away any participation into uh, being part of a, um, a fighter lawsuit, right? They can't take part in any class action lawsuit and then on t related to the uh, MMA. And then on top of it, um, they're doing other things to hold these guys where it's like, you know, uh, if you sign in January and then you fight in September, your contract doesn't begin until September, not January. And also there's a question of like how much 
time is also added if you're injured. We don't quite know some of the details about that yet, but there's an interpretation based on the language that could be that all that extra time adds to the end of the contract, which means getting out of it, even if you've completed all the fights that you owed in that time, still means that you, or whatever reason, they can hold on to you. Remember, they might have exclusive negotiating period for uh, a period of time. They might have matching rights after a time. Now, I don't think they're going to get to the point where they're matching $2 million figures from PFL. That's At that point, I think they would say that's just not worth it to us. But like you can see all these other hurdles are going to make it difficult for guys to get out of these deals. And then on top of it, yeah, I locked my door because Tuki's going to come home. And then on top of it, um, the, it gives the UFC time to offer them a new deal, to offer them potentially more money than they thought they would be getting, to, you know, hey, win one more of these, we'll give you a title shot, or outright give you a title shot, or whatever the case. Like, there's a series of incentives that they could build into the time delay that the contracts provide that prevent them from getting out. I mean, this is what I said on MK, and I'm going to repeat it here because I think it's really important. I mean, this is the PFL's gamble. They got Francis Ngannou to sign with them. That's huge, huge. But the, in order to, like, make this work, at least in terms of Francis's opponents, they need other guys to act with the exact same amount of courage inside UFC. Because, like, who would be the most enticing fights? Obviously, John Jones is number one. Okay, that ain't going to happen. He just signed an eight-fight deal. So, I mean, I guess it could happen if he goes back to UFC, but it, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen for PFL, so that's that's not relevant. And then beyond that, I mean, I mean, rematch with Gone, I guess, is, is you know interesting depending on your perspective. Uh, fights against uh, Aspinall, fights against Pavlovich, fights against Almeida, you know, you name it. Are any of those guys like what is the UFC going to make sure? Because like the UFC may let Blades walk or something. They may let you know Jairzinho walk. They may let Marcin Tibora walk. And I'm not saying that. Blades is on par with those guys. I'm just saying they, there's there might be certain guys inside the top 10, Volkov or something, that they let walk because they're like, what is Francis versus Volkov really going to do for them on pay-per-view? It's not going to do big numbers. Now, Francis versus Pavlovich, maybe that does a little bit better by virtue of like, you know, kind of how interesting the, how, how well it could be sold. I mean, I didn't think it was going to do well with John. I'm not going to sit here and say it would do amazingly well with um, Francis, but I think it would be one of the better ones he could reasonably get. I think Aspinall would be really big, um, potentially, or something like that. You know, you get the idea. There's not many of those guys, and they need one of them to go over. I actually, I, you know, I was thinking about this today. Like, how realistic is it that he ends up fighting for Doom? Well, in Brazil, unlikely, and in Paris, unlikely, because they want to sell on pay-per-view. Pay-per-view is not exclusively, but largely a North American phenomenon, which means you want to have that in a host city where you can generate North American media to North American audiences to sell your pay-per-view. So you'd have to have it around here. So that wouldn't really work. But he's all jacked up. He does have an interesting name. You know, would you pay big money for that? Probably not. But, I, you know, if he's all juiced up, and I don't know if he is, I'm not saying he is. Just saying if he is, I think it kind of changes the equation a little bit. So that might make it more interesting. I mean, you see what he's up against, y'all. Not easy. Not easy. Not easy at all to deal with any of this. Uh, Cormier is not going to go over there. Kane's not going to go over there. I don't know what the situation with Brock might be. Could they pull Brock out of retirement? I mean, I guess he's still under UFC lock and key. I mean, this is the point I want to I, – I, it keeps falling on deaf ears. Like, you don't have to agree. Like, you don't have to watch PFL. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. 
it would be one thing if we had a scenario where we had uh, one dominant promoter and then the other guys were basically in the position that, let's say, like Bellator's in, which is Bellator's got a Bellator's got a better roster than PFL does, over top to bottom. It's got a much better roster, but it may not have the kind of like marquee names that are really good for pay-per-view, right? So they can't really afford Francis in the way that Francis wanted to be paid. There's a certain model by which he wanted to be paid, and there's a certain model that that pfl was interested in pursuing um that's not what we have here we don't have a series of people who just basically can't afford them like pfl can i mean yes they they might be you know ushering in their demise more quickly but um they they have the capacity to at least make those checks cash right they have they have, one thing you can say about pfl is their ability to generate revenue uh, by uh, i should say revenue their ability to generate um investments uh, from venture capitalists and other folks is pretty remarkable how much they're able to get and that enables them to be in these positions i'm just pointing out here folks it's like if they could if john and francis could fight anywhere yeah okay i mean you would want to have them in the most established production crew you would want to have them in the most you know high-end uh promoter who could make it work but would you skip it if it was aired by the pfl probably not like if you really cared about mma if you're actually an mma fan like you're probably going to watch it no matter where it is i'm just pointing out we actually have in this case a promoter who is willing to give you the money and has it ready to go right now but the reason that we have major questions is not about whether two million dollars is enticing versus 150 versus 300k yes of course it is it is very enticing and if they had more mobility as fighters to go to places to pursue these opportunities, this would be an open and shut case. It wouldn't be a big deal. What makes this question so big is not that the fighters just have such grand loyalty to any one promoter or the other. They have contractual limits that make it very difficult to get out and or pressure about being in certain places long term, or they might make poor decisions for the short run, or they just don't want to take the risk of leaving UFC. Like there's all kinds of ways in which it's difficult to get out and or there are penalties in doing so. And that's what Francis and the PFL are up against. So, I mean, I just hope folks reflect on like what it means for the industry to be controlled this way, right? There's no regulation really uh, of any meaningful variety. I mean, yes, there's state commissions, but I mean, of the business, of the structure of the business, there's no federal regulation. There is no uh, entity that has binding legal power. There is no beyond the court, the, the lawsuit itself, no entity driving any kind of mechanism from a legally enforcing way. Now, UFC has reacted to some of the things from that trial to make it, you know, uh, at first anyway, their contract's a little bit more nimble and maybe better, uh, but they have clawed back some of that space with more recent contracts. Like, dude, that's that's the game. That's the game. That is That $2 million price tag is trying to get guys to want to walk through that. And is that enough? I don't know. But if they were signing two fight deals, three fight deals everywhere, which you know, I think would be a more healthy or healthier kind of contract, these fights would they, these guys would just go back and forth. It would just happen wherever, right? Canelo, Canelo fights on HBO, then he's fighting on Showtime, then he's fighting on DAZN. He goes back to Showtime. He goes back to DAZN. Like he can just granted Canelo's a special case, but you, know, you see what I'm saying? Like when they have the mobility to move. Yeah, of course $2 million is going to be enticing. Whether or not that is enticing is academic. Whether they can and they will extract themselves is a very different one. 
Luke, how does Colby defeat Edwards? Does the fact that Colby is much more aggressive in his takedown attempts than Usman help? Um, let's see. When you say aggr- much more aggressive in his takedown attempts. Okay, let's verify that. Let's see what fight metric has to say, shall we? Um, I would like to see what the numbers are before I have any kind of comments. So here are the numbers. Let's blow them up here for you. Da-da-da-da-da. All right. Let's see. These are Colby's numbers. So takedown average four per 50. This is per 15 minutes. So he's good for more than one around in a 15-minute fight. Um, well, he's good for more than one around in any kind of fight, but you get the idea. Like right? a 15-minute fight, you're going to get at least one per round and then another, right? Takedown accuracy, 45%. That's fine because the 50-50 is really about right. Takedown defense, 72%, but, you know, we all sort of know the deal there. Now let's look at this. How many attempts did he have against Jorge Masvidal? 15. That is a shit ton. Yep. Let's look at Usman. How many did he have in the second fight? He had 11. He whiffed on all of them. Against Tyron Woodley, which obviously got stopped inside the distance, 8. Right? So uh, let's see. He is quite going for it. Yep. Those, these are remarkable numbers. Now zero takedowns in that first one. And then the Robbie Lawler fight, he had an absolute shit ton. Yeah, 18. So we're talking about cases where they can, let's say, high single digits and then low doubles, right? That's sort of what we're talking about here. Let's look at Kamaru against Leon. He attempted 15. That's about right. Uh, Against Leon the first, or I should say the second time, he attempted 12. Against Colby, we all know the story there. He attempted one, but that's sort of a separate opponent. Against Jorge, who he knocked out two. But if we go back further enough, we have Gilbert Burns. He attempted three. Oh, excuse me, zero. Um, let's see. Against Masvidal the first time, 16. And then before that, in the first Kobe fight, we know the answer there. How about the Woodley fight? How many? Six. Yeah. So, I mean, here's what I would say in answer to the first part. You say he's much more aggressive in his takedown uh, attempts. Um, one, I wouldn't say it's a huge difference. And the other thing I would say is, it is true that there could be more of a statistical difference of recent, but I think part of that is because Colby has is much more reliant upon that style to win. Whereas, for example, in the uh, I guess the second Jorge fight, Kumar was able to knock him out on the feet. That's something that just like that Colby is simply not capable of. So it's much more bread and butter, and so therefore it is more central to his game. But we have seen Kamaru turn in subsequent, or I should say roughly equivalent, if not actually uh, greater efforts in certain cases. He can play that game too. He just doesn't play it quite as much, but it's not a huge gap. And also partly but related to overall um, the way they fight. I'm just sort of pointing out both guys can kind of do the same thing. One guy can also do another thing. And so it plays a bit of a role. But okay, he certainly is extremely relentless. He is on top of you. He has enormous amount of volume. Let me see about the strikes landed per minute. Yeah, it's up there for Kamaru. Uh, let's see, Colby. Let's go back. Strikes landed per minute for Colby, 4.1. High, not super high, but high. Uh, and then strikes absorbed, 3. Striking uh, accuracy, 39. And, and then defense, 55. Now for Kamaru, let's see, uh, he lands more. Strikes landed per minute, 4.46. And then strikes absorbed, 2.75. And then I guess Colby had about 39-55. And then, yeah, roughly the same defense, but much more accurate striking. You can just see he's just much better about it. Kamaru is overall with that. But that doesn't really tell you the same thing about ground and pound. I mean, look, it seems to me the way he was he would beat Leon, to answer the question, would be something akin to the way he beat Lawler. With meaningful differences, I just don't think Leon is going to present himself at, you know, 
you, you do see a lot of shoulder rolling and whatnot from uh, uh, Robbie in that fight and in other fights as well. But it almost like kind of fed Colby style because it enabled him to just kind of keep going in rhythm and keep working and then put stuff behind it. It just constantly put Robbie on the defense. Robbie, instead of moving out of the way and then striking, he was just kind of covering up or rolling. But I think the idea would be he would want to get some kind of like leg Turk, some kind of ride, the back if possible. Obviously, a takedown if he can get it. But it's usually those in-between positions where they're on one knee, one leg is extended. He's shelved it. He's grabbed it. He's controlled it. It reduces mobility. Sometimes he'll threaten the choke halfway enough to get him to respect it. He's putting ground and pound on it. It's not too substantial. He doesn't have super high volume on ground and pound relative to Kamaru, let's say. Um, but the overall volume out of, after 25 minutes, both on the feet and then the combination there, can be obviously quite substantial. So let's be clear about the terms there. I think it's something like that. Um, but it's going to be hard because he's not going to be able to get quite as much volume standing as he would be against a guy like Lawler. I don't think Leon's going to present quite the same kind of target. He's going to be firing back. He can slip and throw. So it's going to be a function of what he can do to control Leon on the ground. And I think to some extent he can. But I got to tell you, I don't really like his chances that much. He doesn't have... Great submission threat. He's not a torrential ground-to-pound kind of guy. Even if he lands in numbers, usually not too heavy. He's not a big elbow guy that much um, on top. He is good at finding and then controlling, again, leg rides, Turks, that kind of thing. That kind of a thing. Um, so for me, I actually feel like, you know, if he can get it to where he can really get Leon confused and defensive, sure, he can do great work. But, you know, in all the ways that would matter, Kamara is actually a little bit better and still came up short. So, We'll see. We'll see. I actually feel like Kamara was exactly the right kind of opponent that uh, Leon had to overcome to get through a situation like this. All right, let's go back. Uh, this one has one like up. Are they, this thing's out of order, man. I don't set it, but... Okay, here's a good one. Uh, Luke... Can you talk a little bit more in depth on the difference between an MMA fan and a UFC fan? The whole Francis signing situation has enlightened me being this fact. There's a lot of debate about this, and I've seen a lot of comparisons that I don't really feel like meaningfully hold up. I mean, the basic idea is this. Look, there's people like what they like. Like, you just, you, it's very hard to make, as someone who screams about shit all the time, <laughs> to, you know, into the abyss largely, um, I understand it's going to be very difficult to get people to not like things that they really have an attachment to. So when we make these distinctions, we should say a couple things, right? Number one, the largest audience of you of, of, uh, of uh, you, you know, pay-per-view buyers are casual fans, like people who just watch UFC and nothing else. And that's just the way it is in the world. It's just the way it is. Um, and secondly, there's nothing wrong if you are you don't care at all to care all the way like people just have different lives and they have different things that interest them i used to be like you know in my 20s if you don't like mma something's wrong with you and now i'm like there's not a damn I mean, of course that's a stupid opinion right i mean yeah why would you ever think something like that so uh just put that out there but we can't say that they're the same thing like they're not like I'll give you an example, and I've seen people talk about this a little bit, making comparisons to European soccer. I don't really think they, they hold up in the way that they we're talking about. Number one, like the UFC's position as it stands, and this is the UFC's position. Listen, they're being sued because plaintiffs are arguing in a case that has gone on now for some time and gained the most concessions out of any labor movement related to MMA ever that they're a fucking monopoly. 
like again they have to prove this in court i can't make that it's not a rule that's going to be passed but like that's what that they make 90 percent of all money earned in the industry you know we're not talking about a situation where any other sport has a similar model and they don't mean the same things where if someone switches a team and your allegiances change or they don't, aren't these similar kinds of comparisons? Absolutely not. Show me what entity in world soccer, one single entity makes 90%. I mean, you could say UEFA, but I'm talking about like a team or a league would make 90% of, uh, even UEFA wouldn't do it, 90% of all money earned in the, there's like, there's no, there's no comparison, I guess, the NFL, but they uh, and then they have certain antitrust exemptions, others not, but they've at least worked that way through. And again, there is a union there protecting those guys. Like it's a completely different scenario. We're talking about a case where one player makes 90% of all the money and there is no regulation federally, and there is no entity protecting the athletes that is athlete representative, either a trade association, you know, or a union. So all these comparisons that relate to other sports and how fandom can change or not really don't, they're just, they're, they're, they're inaccurate in a lot of modeling kind of ways. But let me give you some sort of clear examples of this. You can watch a lot of UFC and you might feel like you're an MMA fan. And of course, on some level you're watching MMA, like it'd be kind of silly to say you don't like MMA, but it's more accurate to say you really like only like one version of it. Um, it used to be true that there was more parody across promoters. So, of course, you would need to watch Rumble on the Rock to see BJ Penn fight Takanori Gomi. You would need to watch Pride to go see uh, Fedor Emelianenko. You would need to watch UFC at the time to go see Tito Ortiz. You know, you get the idea. Like, it was important to go to those places. Now, it's not nearly as much like that. But it's still very much a place where that is true. It is true that Patricio Pitbull is one of the best fighters I've ever covered, whether or not there is fanfare around this fact. It is simply true that... You know, you can pick, I mean, dude, Patchy Mix has got to be one of the most exciting guys in the fucking sport today. I mean, he is an absolute phenom. It's incredible to see um, what he is up to. Vadim Nemkov has got a case for being the best light heavyweight in the world. Over on PFL, they now have Francis, the either the best heavyweight or the second best one, depending on your interpretation. Some of that dynamic is very much still in play. And so if your allegiance to MMA begins to wane as soon as the organization changes, Right. I guess I don't watch PFL as much as I watch UFC just by virtue of its importance. But like I don't have hostility to watching PFL because it is PFL. I don't have hostility to watching Bellator because it is Bellator. Right. The, 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 one of the clearest signs that someone is really not an MMA fan is that like there is this automatic dismissal. There's really no attempt to get to know the roster. There's no attempt to give it credibility. There is, in fact, hostility to the idea that any kind of credibility could even be gained in a place like that. These are some of the markers that you're looking for that kind of tell you the difference between somebody who is really only interested in MMA as a UFC product and then people who recognize not only is there quality in other places, um, but you actually meaningfully get different kinds of MMA. One championship gives you a very different kind of MMA. And of course, they combine it with four ounce Muay Thai, which really makes it different. Um, PFL, I think, you know, up to this point has given you a tournament system, which isn't meaningfully different, but they've been trying on that end. I think signing Francis is obviously the pivot to the pay-per-view side that they want to go in. And, you know, Bellator has tried any number of things under Bjorn and Scott Coker that, again, they've developed a pretty good roster. And there are guys on that roster that would beat UFC champions. Like, it, it would be foolish to think that that is not the case. Like, they're very, very good guys. And it all kind of looks a little bit different, right? Bellator's got a rounded cage, and they use... 
uh, a tournament system in their own way. And and again, it used to be real different under 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 Bjorn, but they just give you different feels, different looks. It's different commentary crews. It's imagining the sport in a different way. I mean, if you never had the pageantry that Pride presented and having their 10-minute rounds and judging as a whole, you don't get nearly as much innovation. You don't get nearly as much new ideas. You don't seem to, there's a cage versus a ring. There's just a lot of different applications of the same sport where like in tennis, you can play on a clay court, you can play on a grass court, you can play on a, the at the New York Open, blah, 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 all these different kinds of things. It gives you a di- bit of a different look. An MMA fan leans into that. You know, again, with different levels of commitment, different time availabilities, blah, 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 right? But that's the difference. Like, there's either there's either not really an openness, but a seeking out of that, knowing that, like, just watching one promoter, even if they have the majority of the best guys, like, that is, obviously, it's going to be, we all spend the majority of our time as uh, MMA consumers watching UFC content. That's just the way that it's going to be by virtue of how much success that they have had. Okay. But... I'm not foolish enough to think that like that's the only place I can get quality or interesting action or world-class fighters or uh, a, a reimagined version of the sport, a reimagined version of theatrics, a reimagined version of the rule set. Like you want a, a real MMA fan if that's how they feel and in terms of identifying themselves, they 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 run towards that. And I think what you've seen with Francis's situation is like dude, they, I mean, I got to tell you like does it matter to me who promotes um, you know, John versus Francis. Well, if, again, if, you know, the UFC has so much money and so much production effort and so much ability, you know, there's going to, they're going to be the default answer in a lot of cases. But like if the UFC has been knocked for anything, it's that we've seen other promoters who don't have the same kind of money or don't have the same kind of roster begin to put in like, you know, Ryzen. If you, if you ever seen the walkout uh, Juan Archuleta had for the Ryzen versus Bill toward New Year's Eve card. It's one of the most fucking amazing things you'll ever see. Like Juan Archuleta killed it walking in and, and still won the fight and still won the fight uh, somewhat controversially, but he won the key one. And I'm just sort of pointing out like what the Japanese showed me when pride was at its heyday was you need different promoters in the space to reimagine the sport in their not their own image, but in their own liking or in some kind of way that moves the market or meaningfully iterates the sport. And when you've got more of that going on, it's just so exciting. It's so interesting. Like, do I feel like the UFC as successful as they've been more than any other promoter ever in the sport, like bar none? But do I feel like they have all the best ideas? No, of course I don't feel that way. They've got a lot of good ideas. They've got a lot of great ideas, but they don't have all the best ones. Um. MMA fans understand that. And I think people who are just hardcore, they get their UFC or MMA through UFC, um, I think that they don't feel like that's possible. They don't feel like that's real. They don't feel like, you know, like why, if I'm going to watch, you know, um, you know, uh, I don't know what the example, it's it's the MMA is so unique in that way. Um, but like, you know, they, they feel like, why would I watch the Arena League if I can just watch the NFL? But that's that's just not an accurate comparison. That's really not the way that it works at all. Um, so some of these kinds of guideposts kind of tell you, and also time spent watching. But this is what I mean. Like, you can be a guy who watches or a lady who watches a lot of UFC. And, and again, I just want to be clear. Like, there's if, that, if, that, if, if you've actually tried one, you're like, not for me. And you've tried Bellator or whatever, Ryzen or Pride or whatever, whatever, any other thing back in the day today, you know, like, it's not for me. I just like the UFC. Then that's cool, man. Like, like what you like. 
Uh, but we should draw a distinction between those kinds of preferences and the kinds where a true MMA fan um, embraces. All right. Fuck. Oh, here we go. All right. Hi, Luke. How much would you like to see Mark Zuckerberg competing in BJJ <laughs> in a small cage? Uh, there we go. On a serious note, what is the fight you love watching but nobody ever mentions it as a great fight? For me, it would be Joe Lazan versus Jamie Varner. Dude, there's a bunch of Jamie Varner fights you could pick. Like, if you've never seen... It's just so crazy to me. If you've never seen Jamie Varner fight, dude, he's got like half a dozen. Not The Lazan fight was pretty crazy, but he's got he's got a bunch of good ones. So that's one you could pick. The one I always go to, the one that really stands out to me is Carl Parisian versus Diego Sanchez. If you watch this chat, you've heard me mention it a million times. I did a retrospective on it. It's on the YouTube channel now. You can go check that out. It's a different time. It's a different sport. It's a different way in which athletes prioritized position and what they looked for and how they reacted. But even then, it's exciting. It's thrilling. It's back and forth. It's well-matched. And Diego, there was it, the, the odds were close, but Carl was a guy who, you know, uh, had given really good fighters. He had good some wins, and even when he lost to St. Pierre, like you know, Caro was very well respected. His judo was very feared, and Diego took it right to him. And um, and again, there were times where Caro was literally tossing this guy on his fucking head. It was incredible to watch. But that is that to me, like of all the wins Diego's ever had, that might be my favorite. You know, the Joe Riggs one mattered more than it look, might look like on the resume. That was kind of big at the time. There's been some other ones. The Campman win, which I don't feel like he actually deserved. Um, kind of was big too, but the real one for me, man, boy, the real one for me was that Carl one. He earned that one fair and square. He stuck it to him. And that's just to me like vintage Diego Sanchez, Diego Sanchez as a man in full really love that fight. And Carl again, performing quite ably love that contest. Uh, someone asked, I don't need to put it up. It's the same question. Any thoughts or uh, any updates on the Mo Jassim interview? Well, uh no i don't have one for you yet still working that out still working that out good question uh can you give us a provisional breakdown of sandhagen versus umar Nurmagomedov? uh that's gonna be an interesting one god i haven't thought about it i need to think more about it so i know you're asking provisionally okay for sure sandhagen's gonna want to stay off the ground right that's a given but of course umar is tricky on the feet so it looks to me like Sanhagen is going to want to be in a spot where he can work um, from kickboxing range into boxing range and then get back out again. That's going to be the place where he wins or loses. Um, but I feel like if he stays at kicking range and or the ground or with his back up against the fence, it's going to be tough to win. It's going to be tough to win. I, I, it's a great fight. I haven't thought about it at all up until this question. So give me a little bit of time, but... Um, that's a fun one. Okay, great question. Lo I love these Francis questions. These are great. Luke, if Francis experiment, if the Francis experiment gets successful, then how would it affect the media? Good question. Would they be more willing to put more attention to other organizations than UFC? What other changes do you think it would make? Guys, I guarantee if you spoke to any editor, any program director, any, you know, you name it, producer, if they told you they could get traffic from places outside of UFC, they'd be all too happy to do it. They'd be all too happy to do it. I have said it to you guys before. This is so key. 
if you're looking to see why the other organizations don't get as much media, it's because they don't result in any kind of meaningful traffic. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that rule. Francis is going to generate a lot of attention for PFL when he ultimately fights, probably, right? Certainly more than they are accustomed to getting. Um, they will get a lot of media coverage for that. They broke the story in the New York Times. I would imagine the New York Times is going to be there when the eventual fight takes place. Maybe they put the fight there to facilitate kind of, you know, put it in a major media market like LA or New York in order to generate the most amount of uh, possible earned media attention. So I'm telling you now, like, as a media person, if I could get a lot of traffic from UFC content and Bellator content and PFL content and one content, that would be a dream come true. <laughs> be a dream come true it's just not the reality the reality is even if you do ufc content it's not guaranteed to hit like content probably around this weekend is not going to be very lucrative for you it's not going to make a lot of sense i didn't put anything in the title about it no one asked about it which is where this the title comes from but you get the idea that is how decisions are made now you might be saying well they still do cover pfl events they still do cover you know bellator events right there is a certain um journalistic obligation that goes into making sure relevant mma is covered Right, the, the PFL produces relevant MMA. One produces relevant MMA. Bellator produces relevant MMA, and so for that reason, they're going to get the coverage that they deserve. But you're asking, like, why does no one like lean into it? It's because those brands, and there are exceptions because Bellator has done like three million viewers on Spike. They've they're, of those different brands I named, Bellator is the only one to get like a million uh, more than once get a million dollar gate. So they're not all the same. But what I'm pointing out to you is there's not enough of an audience for any of those brands to meaningfully siphon. Like, dude, just let me just explain to you how this works. If I have a choice between making a post about Conor McGregor's new Netflix documentary or tape study on some amazing uh, up and coming guy in PFL that like, you know, and that guy will eventually become champion. But like, you know. Here's my tape study. And that one is so much harder to do and does so much more work. And that piece was so much more interesting. It's going to do a fraction of what a minimal post about Conor McGregor being on Netflix will do. If you get most of your money from ad dollars, which are based on what kind of traffic, you, which is based on what the kind of traffic you're doing, different ways it's measured. But really, that's the key. What would you do? <laughs> like, just think about it logically. They have... The, these entities like and we haven't talked about the collapse of like the the 2010s tech media which has all come apart but that's what their that's what their model is based off of so i've said before they're they, they're just going to go where the money is they're going to go where the traffic is and all of the attention is on ufc and with varying exceptions they'll go to other places at various times francis is going to change some of that a little um but you know that's what they're not just like it's not like if I wrote an article about the PFL, it would do as well about the UFC. It would do not, it would be five readers versus 5,000. What would you do? Like, you're just going to put your, your attention into the kind of pro, into the product that gets results for you. Um, I don't think that's a great way to construct media. And in fact, I'm old enough to say that when I was born, that was not the way that a lot of media was constructed, although it did play a role. But this is impossible to explain. Of course, many of you already know this, but Right, newspapers used to have classifieds, and the classifieds would collect all of the money. There'd be some advertising in the uh, in the in the paper itself, and then they would fund this different work that they wanted to do. 
and there was a little bit at least of a firewall between them where they could collect a shitload of money and they had a they basically had a monopoly in the sense of the kind of distribution information systems with you know a delivery system to people's doors every day right they could charge a bunch of money there was a different consideration between raising it and then what kind of coverage goes with it but now when you tie the two together and the coverage has to dictate how much revenue you can get by virtue of how much traffic you can get and they are directly related you've got some interesting choices to make if you run a website you got some interesting choices to make if you have a youtube channel um so if francis can when francis fights over there and because he generates enough attention um relative to what else they do yeah they'll get more coverage for it but there has to be the kind of they have to have more than just him to sustain it over time that's really how that goes someone says how realistic jones fights out the remainder of his ufc contract then fights francis of pfl deeply deeply unrealistic um this is a weird one thoughts on tucker carlson leaving fox as well as don lemon um Guys, I only watch Fox and or CNN. I figured it out. I was trying to think, like, how, when do I actually ever watch those shows? And the answer is if I'm in the train station or the airport, right? And that's just, like, the only thing that's on TV is that. I'll, I, you know, I'll look up. Cable news is terrible for you. Cable, new, cable news is the same thing as, like, most of our media ecosystem, it's not really news. It's news that they can, in either direction, uh, manipulate or present to a degree to get sponsorships, to get the, well, to get the most amount of viewers, and then sell ads against it. That's 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 the game. That's not like if you were picking the most important things and discussing them in the in the right ways, it would not look like what cable cable news would be the opposite of what you would do, right? You, that, that's a that, that's the, that's just a television. Dude, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, whatever. These are entertainment companies. It's political entertainment, but it's entertainment. And I think once you understand that, you know, it should give a little bit of understanding about what we're talking about here. Don Lemon appears to be a creep. I don't, again, I don't watch his fucking, or whatever he used to do. You know, he seems like an awful person. Tucker Carlson, I'll give a little bit of credit, and I do mean a little bit, um, in the sense that, uh, you know, he was a little bit more anti-war than some other folks, in at least in terms of Ukraine, and was at least willing to challenge some institutional powers in the U.S. government, but, you know, is profoundly racist in the most obvious and deep-seated of ways. And any his populism, I don't believe in. I don't buy. I don't think it's in any way related to a genuine concern for the working class. And there have been any number of examples, I think, to buttress that point. And, um, but he's enormously popular. So, you know, um, he, he was born rich. He's going to die rich. Um, I'm not going to watch his show in between. Someone asked, do I like Verdum as a, here, I'll show you since I'm kind of not showing him up. Uh, Verdum does have a name. It could command a soccer size stadium crowd in Brazil. You can't take that to Brazil. As I mentioned earlier, you cannot do that. You won't sell pay-per-views doing that. You're like, oh, well, UFC took Rousey down there. Yeah. The UFC took Rousey down there. Right. Where, I mean, there's just a level of detail there that, no other promoter can really match it doesn't you know rousey in her prime was popular in a way that like only connor was more popular than if you got i mean many of you were around i'm sure but if you missed it dude rousey was popular in ways that are hard to explain she was like hugely popular um 
Here's another one, Luke. Three dream fights for Francis that can happen in theory inside PFL and how big can they be? Uh, the Bader one I don't really buy. Overeem is a maybe. I don't know about that or not. People have said, what about Rico Verhoeven? Maybe. I tend, I'm a little bit skeptical about that um, because obviously he's well-known to hardcores. He's certainly well-known to kickboxing fans. He speaks English. You know, good-looking kid, or he's a grown man at this point. You know, but like... Um, just you know he's big he's got all the credibility in the world he trains with a lot of mma i think he's trained with francis before uh so yeah like it would be a fun fight for people in the know guys i'll just be honest with you either they're gonna get guys from the ufc or they're not i mean if they can pull a rabbit out of their hat with like brock or something like completely out of left field or you know i don't know i said this before to, to, to bc something i'm not thinking of but like maybe they got some like yoel romero scenario where Someone from 205 came up. That's another one we should kind of keep our eye on. Is there anyone at UFC at 205 that might try to make the leap up and fight Francis? That's another one because we keep thinking like it's just the UFC guys. Or excuse me. It's just the heavyweight guys. Because um, people have said, what about Anatoly Malikin? Dude, Malikin might beat Francis, but he's not a pay-per-view name. What about uh, Arjun Buller? He could wrestle him potentially, but not a pay-per-view name. Um and then there's Marcus uh, Almeida, uh, a.k.a. Bouchesha, who I think very highly of long-term, but again, not a pay-per-view name. Those are fun, fine fights, but they're not pay-per-view names. Dude, he's got to get either creative on that other angle that I've talked about before, or he's got to get one of the – like, dude, one of those dudes has to cross the picket line. Like, that, it really is – you know, I, I don't think it'd be the end of the world or something if he fought Verdum. I really don't. I, I don't I don't think it'd be a disaster. Um, but that would not – I don't think that, that – that's not going to meaningfully change PFL's fortunes, right? That might be fine or something, but not game-changing. That's not a suitable dance partner to, to game-change for him. Okay. Uh, Luke, you discussed inter various international markets that may develop in the future, but one market that I'm surprised that UFC hasn't more aggressively pushed for is Japan. Before the collapse of Pride, Japan was a fairly big MMA player. Well, dude, ho hold on. Let's be clear about something. Before the collapse of Pride, Japan was the player. Like, I can tell you, I lived through it. Trust me when I tell you, we all saw Japan as like the Mecca. The Like what they did was, and to this day, what they did is almost better in terms of grand spectacle than what anyone else has done. I mean, in the Tokyo Dome and I think from Pride 1 and, Dude, they've, they set an incredibly high benchmark. So they weren't just like another big player. The center of the MMA universe only now is in the United States. Uh, and it started out that way, depending on what you want to say, because there was Pancreas before that and NHB. But um, certainly at Pride, I'll just say this. At, by the time Pride was at its peak, that was without question the center of the MMA universe. Bar none, full stop. Now, that being said... It has a large population and strong composite sports from boxing, wrestling, judo, karate, kickboxing to draw from. Is there a reason why the UFC hasn't more actively tried to push in Japan? Yeah, the market is tapped. So there was something that happened. Pride didn't just grow in a vacuum. Pride, and as I understand it, um, uh, pro wrestling organizations, or particularly maybe even just one at that time in Japan, they all kind of flourished simultaneously. It has been explained to me that if you wanted to really understand Kazushi Sakuraba in his prime, the best way to be to think of him as imagine Hulk Hogan at his peak 
but he could also actually fight people in real life. That's what Kazushi Sakuraba, as, as I understand it, um, was in, in his day. And so this, this whole movement has a name. It was called the Kakutogi Boom. Um, the Kakutogi Boom was huge, huge. This sort of general embrace of the, that weird world that MMA and pro wrestling kind of mutually occupied, at least much more closely in Japan at that time than perhaps here today. Um, and it grew and it grew and it grew, and then it involved uh, MMA components, and it involved even Akibono and and uh, Sumo and everything else. But when that balloon popped, it just never recovered. And part of the reason it popped is because it was a bit of a – the sport tends to go in boom and bust cycles. Obviously, the relationship to the Yakuza and Pride and then losing access to Fuji TV was enormous. I mean, there was just a lot of factors. The market really just never recovered. There are still, obviously, to your point, a lot of composite MMA uh, – composite sports that make up MMA there. There's a huge fan base. They are relatively well off. Um, and that's people still like them. Ryzen still does shows there. Um, Sakaki Barra is still involved, um, you know, to this day, not quite, obviously Ryzen is not what pride was and dream couldn't last, neither did Sengoku, but, um, the market has kind of lived on a little bit. So this is just a much more natural look at what's there. The UFC struggled at times to get the right broadcast partner. If you look at old, old UFCs, I think in like the thirties or forties back when like Hayato Sakurai was fighting for them, they were on wow. Wow. They were trying to get on Fuji and, um, I don't even know where they are at today, but uh, you get the idea. Like, um, it's just they've they've tried. They went back there where they took Anthony Pettis there when he hit kicked Joe Lazan, and they've been back with Brian Stan and Vanderlei Silva and many other times. There's a market there. There's a market there. It's just not big. It's just not what it once was. You can't. It's hard to resuscitate it, and they don't really have any. You know, they obviously have some Japanese talent on the roster, but they don't have like they wanted to make a Uri Faber. Um, uh, Norafumi Yamamoto fight back in the day that was supposed to be a super fight that never happened they don't have a they don't have a kid Yamamoto figure I think right now to really you know uh, Tenshin Naskawa is one of the bigger figures and uh, he's just not related to MMA in really any kind of way they would need a figure like that to make going back to the market and reinvesting in it worth their time that that person to my knowledge doesn't exist right now at least not on the UFC roster Good question. Let's get to this one. I'll go back up here in just a little minute. Um, do you think the UFC is phased at all by the PFL's multiple demonstrations of clearly making a run to at least establish themselves as the official number two? If so, what kind of tactics do you think they may resort to? The ones they've always resorted to. Um, so first of all, do I think that they care? I do think they care. I doubt they're very concerned, but again, I watched UFC turn from ultimate fighter even pre-ultimate fighter to what they are today they are dana white and co are aggressive competitors when they need to be aggressive cutthroat absolutely cutthroat so do i think that they're like losing sleep at night over pfl trying to do this probably not they've been here before they've been up against multiple competitors at the same time with a lot of money and good networks to be on who pulled much better numbers i mean you go back in the day just look at the numbers ifl kind of dwindled but at first they were doing you know, I think close to 2 million viewers. You can look at what Kimbo Slice pulled with Elite XC and then on Spike and everything else. Like, there's been times where there were multiple different things going on that they were up against, and they were the ones that lasted, and I don't think that was exactly coincidental. Um, so I don't think they're concerned, but I do think that it's something... I, I, okay, I don't think that they're, like, afraid, 
But I do think they're concerned in the sense that they're going to take a look at exactly who's in their top five, who exactly would be a good fit for Francis, where they're at in their contract, who manages them, what kind of pressure can be applied, what kind of leverage can be applied, what kind of uh, maybe honey they can introduce to the situation, right? Metaphorically speaking, how much carrot, how much stick, and they're gonna. How, can we get them on a new deal? Can we sign them to a, whatever they can do to make that possible exit as difficult as possible? How, what, when is their exit? What's it going to look like? Dude, they're mapping all of that out already. Like if you just think that PFL is going to do this and UFL, UFC on the other end is not thinking about it. I mean, if they've changed and they've gotten lazy, then yeah, they're going to get they're going to get they're going to get whooped here. But I. It is foolish to underestimate them. It is foolish. They're probably working up a response already, and I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that they can't keep everyone uh, if they were all destined and designed, or I should say, uh, determined rather to leave. They're gonna try. They're gonna try. They're they're absolutely gonna have a. If you can stop that, and, and I also think that like just based on the way Dana's talking, that they really want to. I mean, I don't know this, but it sounds like they really want to stick it to Francis as well. You know. Um, so yeah, I would imagine a robust response one way or the other, like, and you may, we may not hear about it we, or we may hear about it in parts. Um, but just seeing how hardcore they went to the mat to put affliction and Gary Shaw and IFL and you name it, you know, to put them under, um, you would be wise to bet that they're going to do everything they can to know what they're up against and what they can do to take it away and then what powers they have to lean on it. You know, I, again, like this is what I mean about the PFL. Like Francis walked out the door because he wanted to, but that's, that's Francis, right? Like that's that guy. Like Francis walked across the fucking harshest parts of earth to get where he is today. Literally, you know, do they have other guys like that on that roster? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. Good question. Great. Good questions today. Can I just say that? Like real good questions today. Love this. Thank you. Uh, Luke, want to hear your take on the BMF belt because in my opinion, the UFC has nearly destroyed any marketing potential it had. Leaving it on Masvidal for like three years, it looks stupid as hell where now it's hard to see it as anything else than a much-deserved token of appreciation for Dustin or uh, Justin. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I'm not going to sit here and shit on it because for a few reasons. One, Dustin-Justin 2 is a great fight. It's a great fight. Like, who on earth is... And it's relevant and, like, you know, like, okay, like, that's a great fight. Number two, it's like... Does adding that to the equation take away from my enjoyment? I mean, I got to watch all the pomp and circumstance about it, but like once the fight starts, no, doesn't mean anything. Like I doesn't, it doesn't hurt it at all. So like it doesn't really materially impact the fight in any kind of way other than just the PR around it. And um, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really care like one way or the, I don't like have strong feelings about the belt being there or not enough to to say this I'll, I'll just say like it does it fe i mean I don't, maybe you guys feel differently to me it reeks of desperation like and when i say that you know what do i mean like the ufc's biggest challenge is not that they don't have considerable assets or considerable resources their biggest challenge is the considerable amount of continuous demand that they have to meet right continuously have to put on shows continuously have to make sure they have content for 
this broadcast partner and that broadcast partner and then this geographic location and then but you know you name it they've just got a lot of masters they have to serve and those are all lucrative relationships but difficult to do especially when guys have injuries or you name it and so it feels to me like it was kind of like look they kind of rushed it out there they wanted to make that fight as look as big as they could you and i both know it didn't need that but maybe they feel like John Nash has talked about this. Like the UFC feels like they probably can't have a pay-per-view without a title on the line. And if the BMF belt wasn't there, they would not have a title on the line, but they don't really have anything else they can put in that role where a title could be on the line because of the rest of the schedule and who's available and how they're constructing it. So you see how kind of all the problems work together here to create the situation. Look, here's what it looks like to me. They didn't have a title fight they can make. Uh, Jorge retired. They're like, fuck it, let's bring it back. Because I want to show this. Like... Hold on here. Here we go. Here we go. Just 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 look at this. Here we go. Speaking to fans in a Twitter QA, UFC president Dana White said the BMF title between Jorge and Nate will be a one-time thing and that there won't be a division or rankings for the title. No. This is a one and done. This is a one-time fight. Uh, he was explicit about it. This isn't the only time he said this. There were many other ways. That whole I was there that fight week. That entire fight week, that's what he was talking about. Like, guys, just enjoy for the one-time thing. They they needed something for the for the paper. They needed something for this for the schedule. And they had a sick fight to put it on, which is why no one's complaining, because you can only put that title on a sick fight. Um but that's really what it's about. So like, you know, am I bothered by it? No, of course I'm not bothered by it. You know, uh, doesn't, why would I, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, I couldn't understand being like super angry about it. I wouldn't get, I, I don't know if I would understand that, but do I think it's like especially valuable or something? Um, I, I, whoever wins that is just, you know, Jesus, whoever loses, both those guys are amazing. Like the winner of that is going to be amazing if it, if if Justin gets revenge. And if Dustin goes out there and beats Gaethje fucking twice, including 1.0 and 2.0, dude, that's amazing. Like either way, both guys are just, you know, like credits to the fight game as fighters. So um, it's hard for me to get upset that they attached a belt that doesn't mean much to begin with to it. It's like, cool, I guess, you know? Uh, all right, piggybacking off yesterday's show about Francis. I'm another black listener. LOL. Yeah, there's there might be three or four of you. That's about it. All right. Uh, I'm sure there are many of us, brother. I hope. Uh, and I go back to your MMA fighting days when you used to grab someone's office for an hour to do the show. Yeah, those were the glory days. Uh, all right. My question: While you mentioned, uh, then I want to get thoughts on I want on on physical 100. I, I did not all the way together finish it. I thought seeing competing was interesting. Great to see you, sexy Alan Hector the season um yeah i didn't get much out of it i didn't get much out of it you know what are you gonna do so it was it was fun you know you know what was weird so i can only speak about this as a you know i'm a 43 year old dad white guy take that for what it is worth it had to be the i don't know if it's a function of like korean health culture or the tv producers were like making them do this but if you watch the show, one of the things that actually gets really tiresome is how, like, image conscious they are the entire time. Dude, they won't stop talking about each other's bodies 
the entire time. And it's like long periods where this happens. Episode like, oh my God, look at his body. Or, oh my God, look at her muscles. Or, oh my God, look at his legs. He's he's so thick. He's so thick. It just got, it went on and on. And I don't even mean at all in like a homoerotic way or anything. I'm, I'm talking like they were just literally like observed. Like they're, the, the thing that they discussed the most was each other's bodies constantly to the point where I'm like, dude, this can't be healthy. <laughs> like I'm all for the guy who's like, you know, having a little shame probably isn't the end of the world for you, but this shit was like completely shameless. I mean, and just uh, like, uh, it was just ever after every episode, I'm like, dude, are they, is that me? Is that my imagination? Are they like talking about this shit constantly? And uh, I talked to my wife about it. She thought the same thing. I was like, Dude, this is ridiculous. So it got a little bit much for me. I, I don't know what that is—a TV thing, something else. I don't know. Um, but it was—it was a little off-putting. Luke, you and Brian were talking about how you don't understand why people aren't more supportive of Francis's PFL deal. Well, sort of. Okay, but considering we've also talked about UFC's cool fan reception to champions Aljamain DC initially, Mighty Mouse, Izzy, Tyron Woodley, doesn't there seem to be a pretty obvious pattern that we're just not saying out loud john jones being the exception what are your thoughts on race being a factor in fan reception to ufc champions yeah folks really don't like this conversation i'll say this about francis i don't think it would matter what race he is at all he would be getting probably a lot of the same pushback okay not at all but in general anyone of any background attempting what francis is doing is going to catch some strays you're not going to try what he's trying and defying the powers that he's defying and trying to be as triumphant about it without catching some strays. Like it's, it's just not going to happen. You know, um, I saw it with Couture, you know, I saw it with other fighters. I've seen the same kind of visceral response and it did not seem to matter who they were. You know, I would imagine, can you imagine a woman trying this? Like, I mean, she would get absolutely fucking skewered by the fan base. You know, when, the, I mean, here's one of the things that you see. It's like when someone gets um, cut from the UFC or leaves the UFC, a female fighter and fan, people, like the immediate outlets will be like, who do you want to see them? What do you want to see next for them? And like the comments are like pornography and only fans. Like, can you imagine a woman trying what Francis is doing? They'd get eaten alive. They would just get absolutely murdered by the media. So there probably is something to the idea that like the background that they come from, you know, ha plays a role in the reception. But to be sure, there, no one would walk through that without getting seriously attacked. Okay, putting that aside, I just want to. I just I brought this up before, but like, I no one ever seems nearly as like. It's not quite right. I don't think they're. How do I say this? To me, it says more than people want it to that when I go to boxing, I've said this a million times, when I go to boxing fights, you know, when I go to Gervonta Davis fights, there's like 10 white guys there and it's like me and BC are two of them. I mean, it's just no white people at all, none. And I've, when I saw Danny Garcia fight um, uh, Benavidez in Brooklyn, 80% black when I go to you know when I saw uh I saw Broner fight Theophane 
And dude, I might have been, and there was like 5,000 people there. I might have been the only white guy there. Like, that's not an exaggeration. Like, I don't know if there was other ones there. Like, it's just a sport whose fan base is overwhelmingly black and Hispanic, at least in this country. Obviously, it's going to be different somewhere else. But in this country, man, that is 100% what the fan base is. Smattering. Like, obviously, you can get guys who, like, pull, like, uh, Tomas Adamic could pull from, like, the Polish community in, like, the New Jersey, New York area. And there's been some other ones, too. But, you know, you get some exceptions like that. But in general, man, that is what that is. By contrast, dude, I've never been – I've never been – forget UFC. I've never been to an MMA show that had a majority black audience never never i've never even seen one let me see something here so i want to i want to see something here too before i say what this next part okay all right brazil so i'm going to read this this is from the nc uh the nacla.org oh is this some kind of here we go what is the racial makeup of brazil uh, white 47.7 mulatto which is mixed white and black 43 black 7.6 asian 1.1 and indigenous 0.4 okay i just sort of want to point out something like go and look at any ufc event in brazil any mma i don't know about any, maybe jungle fights different but certainly for ufc events or you know big nighttime events even in brazil which has a significantly either black or sort of afro um, brazilian population of, vari- of different varieties the audience is still very much majority white. Like it's just, they just appeal to radically different communities. And maybe that's the way most entertainment is. And there's really not much to the story beyond that. But I tend to think when you've got that much racial stratification or division, and then really what this case is self segregation in large part, anyway, even though the athletes might be all different, that might have much more of a diverse mix than the audience itself. You just can't tell me that doesn't affect attitudes towards athletes in the sport. Of course it does. And I know what someone's going to say. Well, how, you know, I don't view this way. I don't, da, 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 like someone in profound denial about the realities of how interpersonal relationships work and how perceptions work, particularly of rich athletes or, you know, any number of different identities we're layering here. I just, it just, it, you know, I realize this is not a conversation people love to have. They love to say that I'm making more out of this than I am. I tend to think that, that is just naive to a degree that is almost comical. You know, Francis's situation, as we said, is going to be one where he's going to be in a difficult spot no matter what. But um, it's just really bizarre to me. I go to this one and I go to a separate but very related fight sport and the communities are absolutely far apart. They are not connected at all. And that is going to play into how everyone inside the sport and then um, the fan base interacts with them, what gets noticed, what doesn't, what people care about, what matters, what's relevant, and how issues and people get viewed and how those things get reflected by all the different community values, which are not the same There is a lot of uh, overlapping similarities, but there's key differences as well. Like saying that that doesn't play a role, like a fucking course it does. It plays a role. So beyond that, I'm not sure what to say, but uh, yeah. Which MMA corporation is the best to work for? I don't know what that means. Uh, what do you make of the theory that the UFC gave Colby the next title shot in return for dropping the charges against Masvidal? Like, is there any proof he dropped it? 
But look at look at the numbers drop as I talk about race. Like this is what I mean. Like people just don't even want to engage with it. Uh, but to my knowledge, I don't know that there's any evidence that they that he dropped the suit. I don't don't think that's uh, last one. Last one on this thing. And we'll get to the. We'll move on to the paid questions. Here we go. So far, you are the only one I'm hearing acknowledge how the Francis deal may go wrong for PFL. With Francis and his potential opponents making so much per fight, what would uh, need to take place for PFL to see a return on this investment? Good question. Could this set a unsustainable precedent for future pay-per-view level signings? Is Francis a big enough name to draw casuals to buy a pay-per-view? Yeah, well, listen, Francis is a big name, but a big fight requires two big names. Now, he could probably do okay with a decent dance partner, but he won't really do super well unless he has somebody else that people really want to see him fight and the question is is he going to get access to that guys i i keep hearing this and i it just drives me fucking nuts that i have to that this part is getting lost this part is getting lost in the conversation namely i keep seeing people say you know this is going to put pfl out of business guys stop fucking lying about what you do and here is what i mean I have seen people go out of their way to say, well, I'm not going to go watch that. I don't care who's over there. You know, I've seen people like name five PFL heavyweights, guys. You already are telling on yourselves, right? Because here's what currently happens with PFL. Look at their numbers, dude. They don't do, they do a terrible live gate and their ratings are between 100,000 to maybe as high as 300,000, anywhere in between and usually lower than that sometimes. Like they just don't do enough numbers to generate enough revenue to make all this worth it. Doing just that, and saying, we're just going to be over here and we're not even going to try to entrench on the UFC's territory with this access to the premier end. They'll go out of business doing that. Now, they'll go out of business maybe a little bit more slowly, but that is a path to 100% nowhere. It cannot work. You can't scale that enough to change the dynamic. It doesn't work. You can make it as big as you want. It doesn't matter. You have to go higher, not wider, right? That's the problem, and they know that. Why do you think they fucking signed Francis? Because the tournaments are cool. Everyone likes the million-dollar stories. These are fun. They don't make them money. That doesn't make them money. That's They cannot survive that way. Look how much money they have raised. Now, it's true. Francis is fucking expensive, insanely expensive. And I'm not in any way telling you the gamble is going to work. Dude, they're, they're, the likelihood is that it doesn't, in fact. The likelihood is that it doesn't. But, but... They are finally playing for an end of the market that, in theory, could. The other one cannot. You know, and all these people being like, well, who's Francis going to fight and blah, blah, blah. You're only proving the point about what has been ailing the PFL and why they are pivoting in a different direction. That's why. <laughs> so when you say shit like that, you're only saying that you're, you're just showing why the PFL is doing this to begin with. Now, of course, you can't just sign top-end guys. you got to have – Coker always talks about it, sign from the top down and build from the bottom up. Yeah, that, all that's still in play, you know, all that's still in play. But that's the game. That's the game. That's what they're aiming for. And all these people who are not going to watch PFL if they just do tournaments and they got Megamed Karamov and that's who the guy, that, you know, or, or whoever's winning their welterweight season or whatever, that gets them nowhere and it's not going to get the other person to watch. Francis at least starts – that conversation and starts the conversation about what kind of money they could generate from the gate and sales and blah, blah, blah. Like he needs a lot more behind him. Like, it's like asking like, you know, is Batman enough to defeat the, the villain? Well, I mean, you need the justice league probably. Can they get the justice league? I don't know. I don't fucking know if they can do that or not. I really don't know, but this is my point. 
saying name five PFL heavyweights is not the own you think it is. It's proof that the pivot that they're under, and maybe they didn't have to pay Francis X amount, and maybe they could have waited for somebody else, but that's who they wanted to hitch that effort to. They want to hitch it to Francis, the biggest, you know, the lineal heavyweight champion of the world, and then move in that direction. That's the game. That's what they're doing. That's the gamble. That's everything. That's where they're headed. And they can't do it with the Megamed Karamovs of the world, even though he's a very good fighter. You know, they can't do it. Bubba Jenkins is a very good fighter. I remember him uh, rapping at Beat the Streets in 2011 or even even before that. Kale Sanderson shared him. He goes to ASU. He wins a national title. Amazing story. He can't get them there. You know, you need a different end of the market to get them there. That's what they're playing for. And they've got the fucking money, at least right now, to pay the guys to perform to do that. The question is, can they get the people to, to sign? And, you know, plenty of money has been offered. Money is not the issue. The issue is, as I, I everything aforementioned. So, like, you know, everyone being like, Francis could bankrupt them. What do you care? You're already telling me you don't fucking watch PFL. The fuck do you care? And I know for a fact that the, the vast majority of us don't watch PFL because I see the fucking numbers. Our PFL content does terrible at MK. I don't do any PFL content here except for this. This is the most PFL content I've ever done. All because of Francis. That's why, guys. That's why you can't sustain in business pulling 150,000 people on ESPN and having no gate. You can, it doesn't. You can make up all the tournaments and everything else you want to do. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. You need other ways, much more significant ways to generate revenue. You need access to guys like Francis and Ganu. That's that's the whole fucking shit. I hope everyone understands that now. So if they go out of business, trust me when I tell you it's not Francis's fault. Doesn't mean that his deal didn't hasten it if that ends up going that direction, right? But they were, it, it's if they stick with what they're doing, it's a certainty that it fails. A certainty. And you're like, well, how can they keep doing it? They've been living off in fucking venture capital all this time. Has the PFL made a profit any year in its existence? I bet my life the answer is no. I'd bet my life. I'd bet my life. I'd bet all, all the property I own, my home. I'm not going to bet on Tuki because, you know, she's too precious in this world, but I would certainly bet on everything. I'd bet they've never turned a profit. So complaining that Francis is going to put them under like all these people who are like, what am I going to do without my PFL? You fucking don't watch to begin with. That's what they're trying to change. Right? Do you get it now? That's that's what the that's that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. It's a push to the middle to get to the sec the sector of the market that they think actually can get them solvent and relevant and everything else. That's the push. So the next time someone says to you like name five PFL heavyweights, dude, they're not fucking arguing with you in good faith. These are people who don't watch, who are probably telling you that they're also even with Francis not going to watch. And they don't, they don't care at all about anyone on the roster. They've probably watched very little of any season, if ever. And they're sitting there trying to be like, well, who's he going to fight over there? Motherfucker, that's the fucking point. The whole fucking point is to move away from that. <laughs> and people are like challenging that. Like, that's so like, they, oh, they got some fucking nerve to want to make money, right? They got some, oh boy, they really... What am I going to do without that PFL I don't watch? Yeah, I don't know, guy. What are you going to do? 
probably just do all the shit you've been doing, right? So we can be realistic that their chances are low. Chances are low, boy. They're up against it. Chances are low. And at the same time, recognize that there's nothing in any way crazy about what they're trying to do. That's, you can say both. You can live in a world where you understand, chances are not good, but what you're doing otherwise ain't going to get you there. So fuck it. Why not? Fuck it. Why not? The PFL story. (laughs) All right. Let's get to some of these questions if we can from the uh, super chat. We'll go from there. All right. Let's see what we got here. Uh, First things first, if you had a BJJ match with BC, how would it go? And how would you prefer to finish the fight? Uh, So if it's Nogi, I would get on top, pass, mount. And then um, I, because he's a white belt and doesn't know shit, I would, uh, for fun, threaten Americana. He would either let me have it or turn, in which case I would just snatch the arm bar or I might just get an Americana from side control. I have a long enough body to do that. So, uh, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be much. Stipe versus Almeida. Oh, you mean like Stipe Miocic versus Bouchesha? I think Stipe still wins that. He's obviously been a much better heavyweight than we've ever seen Bouchesha be, but he's also old. So I don't, I, I, you know, I lean Stipe, but could be interesting. Uh, with all the Francis talk, no one seems to be talking about his age. This time next year, he'll be almost 38. He'll be 37 in September. So he'd still be 37, but to your point, I get it. How much can the, uh, he offer the PFL at that age? Well, I asked Eric Nixick that, and they're trying to see if he can get the boxing fight first, which I think, oh, here's the other part too. Like if he gets a boxing fight with Tyson Fury and is it's all big, and if he looks even remotely competitive, I think it could do a lot for his stock at that point. But, you know, that's also very speculative. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, 37 at heavyweight is not super ancient, and he would have, to, like, I would be more worried about ring rust and then losing a fight against a guy who would have obviously dusted, not so much because of the age per se, but because of the inactivity. So, but yes, these are all relevant questions. Like, I asked, like, this is what I asked Eric Nixick yesterday. Like, 35 to 37 at lightweight is not like your prime years, but at heavyweight, those are still very valuable years. And he just, partly he was injured but in the end if he doesn't take a boxing fight and so it's two and a half years before we see him because january 2022 was the last time we did he just punted away two of the better years he would have that's the risk he ran folks that's the risk he ran this is what i mean like cheering against a guy who's risking all this i mean you don't have to cheer for him but being like angry that he's trying just seems bizarre all right Every kid in the 80s, including me, was a pro wrestling fan. That's true. I said that. Uh, I know you hate it now. I don't even hate it now. I just can't watch it. It's not for me. I, I try to be more enlightened about it and realize I've got friends who like it. I, there's people I respect who do it. You know, it's just not for me. I'll leave it at that. All right. But can you state what your best pro wrestling memory is and what made you a fan? Dude, I, mean, I grew up in the 80s, man. Like Hulk Hogan was just was was a one of the gods of the 80s him and the ultimate warrior there was a there was a my brother when we were kids when my mom went to toys r us because that was also a thing and she bought this hulkamania set that came with like a jump rope and a headband and like and like you know uh like wrist wraps like you would to wipe your sweat and then like you know three pound dumbbells and stuff and you know hulk hulkamania as a thing was just this 
kids were enraptured by it. I mean, it was amazing. Ultimate Warrior was big. I can tell you the match I remember the most from my childhood, and I'm told it still holds up to this day, uh, is Macho Man versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And, you know, it's one of those more high-flying acrobatic ones. I remember that one distinctly. And, like, again, like these guys, they're putting their bodies on the line. People love it. I, I don't want to be the dude who's like, you should stop. I mean, it, yes, I don't like it. I don't like it. But, um, but those are the things that stand out to me. He had cartoons on TV every Saturday, the Hulkamania cartoons, whatever, whatever they were called at the time. And, you know, Mr. T was, he, you know, he was in movie. I mean, it was just, dude, Hulk Hogan was huge, 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 huge. We live in an age of micro celebrity, so it's very hard to appreciate this. But the 80s, we had much more shared heroes across communities, or at least, you know, we didn't, we had, we had many more shared popular figures together than we do now. And Hulk Hogan was, at the time, very much at the top of that, man. Let me let me remind you. Uh, all right. Luke, please remind me of books and content surrounding PED usage from your stance and that debunks the fear-mongering surrounding. Well, there are risks. It's not that it, it's just what is a more sane, rational drug policy. Again, um, the anti-doping crisis in sport. The anti-doping... Here we go. This one. The anti-doping crisis in sport, causes, consequences, and solutions. Paul DeMio and Werner Muller is how it is pronounced. By the way, you see these people? This is the publishing group, as I got stains on this fucking thing. Routledge, right there, see that? Routledge. Um, they put out all kinds of literature on the ethics of doping and then the ethics of anti-doping. Tons of good stuff from the people that produced this book. And these guys are both professors and academics in Europe. Since you are circuitously Lebanese, right? Were you ever exposed to Arab culture? Yeah, of course. And music such as um, Fairuz and other fabulous artists. Not so much individual artists. Certainly through food. My mom... Dude, if I say that my mom made hummus every day, I'd be undercounting it. Um, my mom had very strong ideas about what counted as taboule and what didn't like with, uh, you know, she would go crazy if people put too much bulgur wheat in it. She used to hate it, you know, and drive, it would drive her crazy. And um, she would go to like, you know, uh, Lebanese butchers to get food and stuff when we were kids. So like very, I mean, these are just two common, you know, everyday foods, but in general, a lot of Arabic food. My mom spoke Arabic. We had Arabic literature in the house. Um she, I don't know how big she was on Arabic music. Not so much that, but some Arabic literature. Certainly, um, we talked so often about Arabic part or the you know the Arab world. And um, I was a kid when I went to Egypt with my father. I went to Egypt, Jordan, Israel. Um, you know what is now parts of occupied Palestine. Um, where else did we go on that particular trip? Certainly those places. And, you know, I felt like I walked into them with like a lot of good information because of my mom and what she knew. And um, so, you know, it's funny, man. Like I went back to Lebanon in 2018. No one, my sister's never, well, my sister was born there. Um, but as adults, I'm the only one who's ever gone back. Um, my, my brother and sister have never made it back. And it was so funny, man. I remember going there and looking around and then taking the city in. Um, and you know, like all the street signs were like in English and French and Arabic, like French and Arabic, 
and German were like the languages and obviously English, but like from where she was living, she came to the States speaking all those languages fluently. And like, I never quite, you know, appreciate like, why did you have so many languages? And it's like, Oh, well they all spoke it in Beirut, you know? And then you go and you see it and you're like, Holy shit. Like it really is exactly the way she said, obviously it's a former French colony, but, um, I understood her better when I went there. And actually I understood her demise better when I went there because I think she had found a place in life where she was so far divorced from that. And I think it really was much more part of her identity than she would be willing to admit or ever really realized. And, um, yeah, so I can't say that I'm, you know, I'm some kind of expert on any of this stuff, but I would say that Arab culture definitely and, and understanding the Arab world and whatnot was a big part of my relationship to my mother and uh, played a key role in my understanding and the way I view the world, quite frankly. Um, how should Raul Rosas Jr.'s fight progression compare to athletes like Pico? He also debuted young with no favors regarding matchmaking and is now 26 and reputable despite fighting good talent early. Well, we still haven't seen him pass that last test not last test, but like just that one that we kind of need to see to get him, uh, you know, to a place where we can really trust his return to top form. He's looked amazing, but against overmatched opposition. So I want to see it against someone like Jeremy Kennedy, who can really give him some some run for his money. And uh, I, I, if they can keep feeding him contender series guys, I think that's the move right now. Like he's green. He's not bad he's green and we gotta make sure that that process doesn't get rushed so i think they need to keep him competitive like active and they should be giving him guys like off contender series anything more than that i think you're making a huge mistake at least at least for right now let's see two three more fights what they look like if he starts you know blowing those guys away all right you can start ratcheting it up but like just that mm -mm, mm -mm. uh okay Alexa Grasso is Mexi Mexican Kristen Bell. Do you want to build a snowman? Uh, good afternoon, longtime fan, listener, blah, blah, blah. Thank you, sir. I'm practicing MD, okay, uh, in internal medicine and infectious disease. I've trained BJJ and I'm a blue belt. Well, thank you, Dr. Marku. I don't know where you practice, but uh, I appreciate the support and congratulations. Infectious disease, you might see some of your uh, teammates there in the ER when they get staff. Uh, Luke, how soon, if at all, would you be able to put up that Super Mario MK shirt? I got to write that guy back, hopefully soon. Um, but we'll see how that goes. So, what, what month is it now? May? My birthday is August 5th, probably before that. Almost certainly before that. All right. Super sticker. Thank you. Oh, here we go. It's the same dude. Been watching MMA for about 20 years now and interested in being a licensed accredited ringside physician but don't know the process. I've looked around, but found dead ends and scams in the process. It wouldn't necessarily, my understanding is it wouldn't be through any kind of, you, you should go directly to the commission. Um, and I don't know if you live in the city where the commission is located, but it is always best to go to their offices calmly and professionally, which as a doctor, I would imagine that you would, that's going to be your best bet. You have to call the commission. You have to write the commission you have to go see the commission. You have to kind of get in their face a little bit about it, depending on what state you're in. They may not be even looking for ringside physicians, um, in which case that explains why you haven't heard back as quickly as you need to. That's that's the that's the reality. You have to you have to you have to go to them. 
And lastly, oh, in New Jersey, I'm exposed to many smaller promotions, which I'm open to, but do you have any ideas? Okay, so here's what I would say. You have to contact uh, Nick Lembo or someone else at the New Jersey uh, State Athletic Control Board. That's their, that's their issues. If you can't get through to them, then I would go to a show or contact a promotion, identify yourself, and say that you're trying to work with either them or the commission to facilitate. Um, there obviously would be some kind of a screening process. I do not know what New Jersey's is. They usually are a little bit more rigorous than most places. So there might be some certification about what you need. Also, I don't know if there are rules about whether or not people who are infectious disease experts are exactly what they're looking for. They might be more hands-on kind of trauma ER type doctors. So again, it, there's, there's a few hurdles there, but if you're really serious about it and you really want to do it, um, you need to contact, uh, you can need to contact the New Jersey State Athletic Control Board and or the promotion, and you kind of got to be aggressive about it. How long would BC last in a fight with Nganu? Depends. Like if Nganu doesn't throw punches, he'd last a while. Would a hundred million be enough for you to get in the ring with Nganu? Yes. Yes. I would risk getting seriously fucked up for that. Absolutely. One billion percent. Yes. Uh, what do you credit your MMA IQ to? I don't know. Well, that's 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 up for you to decide. Film study experience, what kind of training you've done. Uh, also, right. I mean, um, I don't know exactly what you mean by that, but it, like to the extent that I offer any analysis that you guys find valuable, I'm grateful. Uh, but beyond that, the answer would be all of the above, right? So there's training experience. There's covering the fight game for nearly 20 years at this point. There is... Um, as I mentioned, talking to coaches, talking to regulators, talking to fighters year after year after year, watching tape, watching the sport change, seeing what about it changed over time, right? Because if you just get thrown, like if you just had, if you've never seen MMA today and you start watching it, a lot of it is going to look confusing. Over time, you'll begin to pick up on what matters more. And then as the game actually changes, right? The, in my time, when Michael Jordan was playing the NBA, they played a very different style of, you know, the triangle offense with the Bulls. And now everyone's shooting threes in the perimeter. Like they play a different game. But if you started watching then and then you stayed watching till now, you have a clear sense of like how everything moved in that process. And it just by over time, that arc gives you a little bit more perspective. It's, it's all of the above. It's again, I, try to bring that to all the work that I do. I don't know how successfully, but um, that's that's the game. Hope you're doing well. Appreciate the content. Thank you, Dave. Best guess about if they will get a fighter to fight Francis that moves the needle on pay-per-view. Great content. Um, I'll say this. If he has a three-fight deal, I think they probably get one. I think that's probably best-case scenario. Uh, or I should say, I want to know, best case scenario is they get all three. I think that's a likely scenario or, or even a doable one. Like one out of three seems possible, but three out of three, I, uh, you know what? Two or three is possible. If Francis gets a big boxing match and really blows up, I think that could be game changing again. Uh, but that is a big if that's a big if as of today, I think one of three is possible. You get to choose Francis's next five opponents outside of Jones and Pavlovich. Who are you picking? Just for fuck, just for shits and giggles. Number one would be uh, Anatoly Malikin. Guys, I'm not. I'm not doing a bit when I tell you Malikin might be the best heavyweight on earth. Like I don't know that. I'm not declaring it, but kind of curious. He is very good. So that's one. Um, for sure, Aspinall. For sure, Jelton Jal uh, Almeida. 
seen the Curtis Blades thing twice, so maybe we could pass on that. That's three. Um, and you can't do Jones, and you can't do what was it? You can't do Jones, and you can't do Pavlovich. Well, Pavlovich went with another one. Um, who else? Is there anyone in PFL right now? The Verdum one, I actually wouldn't hate. I actually wouldn't hate. Again, if he's on the sauce, again, uh, you know, <laughs> just being realistic. If he's on the sauce, I don't, I, I'm much more interested, just candidly. Um, I gotta see who's in that top five. There's, who am I? I'm, I mean, am, I, am I like obviously missing somebody? A rematch with Gone. Yeah, I don't know. That's a. I mean, that's really about it. Maybe you could throw in Volkov. I'd be okay with that. It wouldn't necessarily be like a game changer for me. Did you see uh, Jesus Olivares's back squat at Sheffield 23? No. Seeing anyone move? Oh, yes, I did see that on Instagram. That's right. Four seven four hundred and seventy kilos like that was amazing. Even for me as a bigger fan of weightlifting and powerlifting, yeah, uh, I didn't pay too much attention to it. The st- Regular squatting of all the lifts, I'm not here to declare anything to you about about how good it is or bad it is. It's the least fun lift for me to watch. No, sorry. Benching is the least fun for me to watch. Squatting I like, but not when the bar is racked versus when it's in an overhead position. So... This is just me talking about my entertainment value, nothing else, not how you should feel about it. Uh, so I kind of didn't pay too much attention to it, but it is an absolutely astronomical achievement. Yes. Right. When did that happen? Like I saw like a month ago or something. 24, dude, that guy looks like he's 44. Uh, yeah, March, I think, right around March. About a, Yeah, but no. About a month ago. About a month ago. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Uh, do you think that in the next few months or the next year, other MMA fighters will do what Francis did with the PFL? Again, we've sort of been over this a little bit. I hate to be repetitive with it, but um, oops. Excuse me. Um, I do think they'll be able to get at least one. I don't know beyond that. In all your years covering boxing and MMA, who was the one boxer MMA fighter you felt most intimidated by, such as an interview being close? Do you know who had me just stumbling over my words? Intimidated by him. I'm not worried he's going to punch me or anything, but like intimidated by the moment. You're going to laugh at this. Uh, Casey Lydon could back this up because he was my camera guy at the time. It'd be um, Lucas Matisse. Lucas Matisse almost walked off my interview because I kept stumbling trying to get the intro going and he was like visibly frustrated. he was right like he was visibly frustrated this was when he fought who the fuck was he fighting danny garcia and uh this was years ago like 10 years ago something absurd and um he got real bitter at me he eventually stayed and did the interview but uh i was really nervous then uh but like intimidated Mm, you know, first time I saw Randy, I went back when we, we had phone ID, like with our landlines. I've said this before, and I came home and I saw the phone said Couture, comma Randy on my on my um, caller ID. I was like, holy fuck, you know. But the only time I really ever was like legitimately nervous, and I can't really explain why. Lucas Matisse. Uh, Aljo hasn't gone on his channel and announced the UFC 292 fight. Dana's announcement seemed to be a counter-strike to Francis. Yes, of course. 
Do you think the fight stays at 292 or 293 Sydney and Komen with Volk? Guys, I've said this before. You know, it's so funny to me. There's one argument that they've been trotting out about Francis that I find fucking hilarious. And it's like, you know, well, uh, Dana said bad things about Francis and BKFC's Dave Feldman said bad things about Francis and Chatri said one thing about Francis. What, you think that they're all wrong and Francis is right? And it's like, holy shit, do you hear yourself? Do you mean the three guys you named whose job it is to lie for a living. I mean, that's just part of the job. I'm not even bagging on them. That's the gig. Yeah, you got to tell some truth, of course. But artful and decisive and, frankly, voluminous amounts of lying, that's the gig, man. That's the job. That's that's what you got to do in that job. And all promoters do it, right? I mean, that's, that's part of the gig. You're going to tell me that you find them more trustworthy than the guy who's like objectively getting a better deal for himself like what what okay um no that's not what you're asking so i'll say this about those announcements dude those announcements to me are all provisional all of them are provisional i'm not telling you that they're not happening i don't know but we know for a fact that the ufc has at times and not just them by the way not just them but we know for a fact at times promoters, including and often them, will release information about a fight that's not fully signed, uh, guys haven't agreed to, are upset that it gets released. You know, why hasn't Aljo gone on his channel? Your guess is as good as mine. I haven't spoken to him, but, um, you know, you'd be wise to wait until all those things are confirmed independently. You'd be wise. If Canelo were to beat Bivol by a close decision in September, which I find very unlikely, do you think he'll fight uh, Baterbiev, better beef, in May of 2024? No. I think the Benavidez pressures, I mean, maybe because uh, better beef is getting kind of old and maybe Canelo likes his chances, but better beef is a fucking hammer too. Um. Or are you asking, does Bivol fight him? Bivol definitely might fight him. Canelo, I think, might go back and fight David Benavidez or Charlo or something. I just wanted to show support. I watched Raid 1 and 2. I highly recommend Hell Dogs, which is a Yakuza revenge film. Thank you for all your thoughts, Sir Donk. Thank you, Mr. Patel. I will check out Hell Dogs. But hey, Othello, make a note of that, please. He's watching. I know he'll do that. All right. Smaller promotions should focus on being easily available in Europe. Ryzen and one are okay. Bellator and PFL US, not so much. I want to pay, but it's hard or impossible to watch these legally. EU market is smaller, but still. I think that's why they're trying to get these subsidiary brands going, PFL Europe. And I mean, Bellator, I don't know all of where, where you're, you're, you're using the English pound, right? I guess. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what their situation is with the various markets there, but Bellator does have a pretty good command of um, live gates in both the UK and Ireland. So, um, yeah, they probably should make it more accessible, but I, I don't feel I, I I'm not under the impression that like their product is super out of reach. So Rashid goes, black listener here. Cool, man. What do you think about society's overnight fear of AI? Yeah, we've kind of talked about this a little bit. Kind of reminds me of the internet rhetoric in the late 90s, early um, thousands. I, uh, my brother, I talked about this. My brother is involved in machine learning, actually. Um, and so I had a conversation with him about it. I mean, the, you know what? Per, I'm so glad you asked. 
BC and I discussed this on our uh, stupidly, but 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 relevantly, we discussed this on this upcoming episode of uh, Room Service Diaries we recorded, which I think is going to go out Sunday. So check that out. We get into so glad you asked. We get into that. The punk rock NBA has highlighted differences in how success is praised in hip hop versus rock and metal scenes. Sellout culture. Do you see any? Oh, you mean like if you like do like a Sprite ad in hip hop, you're like bawling. If you do one in rock and metal, it's like selling out. Do you see any similarities with how financial success is seen in boxing versus MMA? Many hardcore MMA fans don't seem to follow other sports. Could this also be related? Yeah, a lot of people who are like hardcore MMA fans don't watch other sports, which I think kind of limits their perspective to a degree. Um, But you're asking in boxing versus MMA. Oh, I see. Um, Not as much. Not as much. I see what you're saying, right? Because there would be some overlap with with racial demographics there that we had spoken about before. But again, those are are a little bit loose. And what I would also say is I think some fans still recognize MMA is prize fighting and getting a big bag is important. They just think that the best way to get the big bag is to stay, uh, is to never challenge Monopoly. And for some fighters, that might be right. But for some fighters, it might not be. What fighters, regardless of their current promotion, could you picture bringing significant attention to one Muay Thai if they signed? It's so entertaining, but it seems to lack big names needed for growth. Man, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what the big kickboxing names are. You guys know kickboxing is absolutely one of my weak points. I don't really know a lot about it. You know, I've not like utterly, completely, um, you know, I, I've never seen a fight. No, I've even worked for Glory for a time, but it's just not my wheelhouse in that way and so i don't know what the big names are they could bring that would make a difference in that regard if you're talking about mma names then you know the answer to that question as best i do um you know they need somebody who can move units on pay-per-view they need people who have gigantic you know countries or constituencies following them that that, that part's not so easy not so difficult to figure out if reggie jackson is going to be on the stream why don't you bring barbas good question She'll be see who dominates the pet game. Barbus is usually outside because I have to lock my door. With ADCC BJJ athletes making good money now, well, some of them, would it serve Dern, Crone, BC, and others, I'm not sure you mean by BC in this case, to do both UFC and tournaments? No. No. So, first of all, it's not many guys making big money. It's just a handful of guys. Um, Gordon Ryan is one of them, but he's not the only ones. They make money primarily off instructionals to some extent seminars and that kind of, and then maybe they have some of them have sponsorships, but that's really the big way they make money is like selling their understanding of the craft. But in order to do that, you really have to be kind of locked onto that world and very much enmeshed in it. You can't do both of those at the same time. Now, isn't to say you couldn't make some money doing other kinds of instructionals. Demi and Maya has promised to do one uh, for MMA that I would love to fucking see, but um, no, no, I don't think you could reasonably manage that. We're talking two different sports, two different realities, two very different needs. All right, Luke, they're setting Rob up for failure. He's going to chin the Black Panther at 290 and then have a less than two-month turnaround for Sydney. <laughs> Is the Black Panther uh, Drigas Duplessy? Yeah, dude. And you know what? I actually saw Rob Whitaker talking about this. I guess he does some podcast with another Australian dude. And they talk about MMA and then video gaming. Um, and I saw him talking about this. Apparently in Australia, they're putting out marketing 
with like Rob and Izzy's face on like Sydney, like UFC 293. And he made a point. He was like, dude, I like, I don't think he was saying UFC was doing it. Maybe like other media entities were doing it. Well, who I'm not sure exactly who he was saying, but that, that, that it existed in the market was a thing he was like bothered by because what he was saying is like, that would be severely underestimating the threat that a guy like Drickus poses. And he was not in any way accepting of that reality that, that, that like, he's like just going to be a walk in the park and then turn right around and fight in Sydney. Now he did say that it would be a goal to get, I think to, to be able to, to be ready to perform on that Sydney card. But yeah, dude, there it's a quick turnaround, man. If like, if that Drickus fight ends up being like, dude, Drickus fights, you know, crazy, but physically, you know, like the, the like the the bouts are rough. Uh, if Rob can maintain distance and like you know hit and not get hit like he can sometimes do, then yeah, I'm not too worried. But that's a, it's a little bit presumptive or presumptuous, rather I should say. Do you need a writer? If so, I'd like to pitch you at your email. And so happy that Chael can't make a weekly video dumping on Francis. I have not seen him do that. I don't know if has he been doing that. Has, has he been taking a dump on old Francis? I mean, you know, look, Chael likes the route where um, you do what he did, which is you make your name through the promotion. They do you favors. You guys work together inside of that space, and you know, there's a certain kind of protective halo, and you feel like you're really doing something in that way. Like you stick to what's safe and secure. And I understand that for a lot of guys, it did it, it did work well for him. Like you can say that it did work well for him. Um, but like, I just don't know that that is uh it's just not a it's just not a scalable path for everybody you know uh <laughs> uh thank you very much that's very sweet of you um who do you have between umar and sandhagen by the way nieve do they call correct me if i'm wrong nieve is snow is it not is my brain not working right? That it would be possible. Yeah, it's snow. I don't know where this gentleman, Steve, as my wife would say, Steve um, Trujillo, is from. But do they call ice cream snow? They call it helado in Colombia. Do they call it? Do they call it nieve someplace else? I don't know. That'd be actually that'd be kind of a funny name for it. I didn't know that they. I didn't know that they did that. Do they call? So, like, I didn't know this. You know what the most, like, crazy-ass word is um, between Spanish? First of all, here's how you know that that the Hispanic culture is better than ours at partying. There's, like, I'm not doing a bit here. There's, like, 50 words for party. Like, endless fucking words for party. Like, and they, and they all mean slightly different things. You know, they're not exactly, like, directly transferable. There are certain places where you would use fiesta. There are certain places where you would use gozadera. Like, and it goes on from there, man. They got like a million words for partying, and they've got like a million different ways in which they've like shoehorned partying into like just things we don't shoehorn parties into. And then with that, like dancing and drinking and eating and like oh, the fucking dude, like their their part, like Hispanic culture party game is about as good as I've ever seen. Um, not seen all the party cultures in the world. Fair enough. But from the ones I have seen, they, you know, they're all different in their own ways, of course. Like, it's all not, it's not one monolith thing. But, like, you know, the fact that they've got 85 words for party is, should sort of be a clue. All right, last but not least. Um, someone says, I saw Chatri on weighing in. Oh, did he? 
he didn't contradict Francis, said it was mostly true. It just seemed to be a difference in perspective. He was gracious. Yeah, well, that was only after that, you know, he took a dump on him in public and tried to make it be like, well, this guy is just clearly wanting too much. I had to just walk. Also, you know, uh, I don't really trust him. You know, I like one as a product. I like one's staff in general. I, I like Rich Franklin a lot. I've well, I got deep respect for Rich Franklin. I mean, he's really the OG, but um, and he did some amazing shit in the sport too, man. If you've never seen Rich Franklin versus Travis Luter, you should see that. Um, his fight with Dan Hendo was great. You know, he's just had a dude. He had a his fight with he beat the fuck out of Evan Tanner, boy. He went to work on Evan Tanner. Um, the David Loazzo fight, he changed David Loazzo. He was never the same. I go, I mean, Rich Franklin's the man, dude. Like, I got a lot of respect for Rich Franklin. Um, but you know, I was offered, I haven't told it, talked about this publicly, but I have nothing to lose because I'm never going to talk to the guy, but, uh, I was offered an interview the week of, uh, the one debut in Denver, the U S debut, which by the way, was, it looked amazing on Amazon, like two thumbs up for me. That was a home run. They did really, really well, but uh, I did. I didn't get back to them right away, but I did get back to them, and then they just like we withdrew the whole thing. Like it was supposed to be a sit down with him and like iron it all out, and then it just blew up, and like they they ultimately just didn't commit. And um, you know, and there's more to it than just that, but that's the broad details, and that's like, yeah, man, I just don't have very. I don't trust the guy. I don't trust, and I don't think there's. I don't. Ha I don't have any good reason to trust the guy whatsoever. So he can say whatever the fuck he wants on anyone's podcast. It all seems to me like a big waste of time. So, anyway, there's that. But I do like Big John and Josh Thompson. So, shouts to them. All right, that is it, boys and girls. Thank you so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. As you know, we'll put everything up on podcast. We'll change out the thumbnail, all that good stuff. You want to reach me, Luke Thomas News at gmail.com. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. And until next time, boys and girls, stay frosty. Bump, bada, bump, bump. Mm -mm.